0: Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the end of times, occasional podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. This episode was recorded on April 17th, 2020. I'm Nicholas Terrier, professor of law at Indiana University in Indianapolis. Two excellent guests this week. First and a repeat visit to the pod is George Contreras, professor of law at the University of Utah, S.J. Quinney College of Law. There he teaches in the areas of intellectual property law, property law, and genetics and law. He has edited six books, published more than 100 scholarly articles and book chapters. He's recently been named one of the University of Utah's presidential scholars, and won his school's 2018 to 19 faculty scholarship award. Welcome back, George. Thank you very much. Mark Lemley is the William H. Newcomb Professor of Law at Stanford Law School and the director of the Stanford Program in Law, Science, and Technology. He is also a senior fellow at the Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research and is affiliated faculty in the Symbolic Systems Program. He teaches intellectual property, patent law, trademark law, antitrust, the law of robotics, and AR. AI, Video Game Law, and Remedies. He's the author of eight books and 179 articles, including the two-volume treatise, IP and Antitrust. Welcome to you, Mark. Thank you. I think I was expecting to see both of you at Stanford in, earlier in the spring, but... Uh, Along with everything else that uh, that fell by the wayside this year at least I know from from my health law work and and stuff that we're doing here uh, of the extraordinary demand for PPE ventilators pharmaceuticals during covid 19. now some of our problems are caused by politicians but we really don't have time to get into that but more aptly by difficulties in ramping up production some problems because of breakdowns in the international supply chains and so on we're also facing an explosion of fake products such as tests and counterfeit masks and even counterfeit medications So it seems to me that issues such as protecting and incentivizing innovation and protecting the public from fakes seem to raise sort of classic IP issues. And I wondered if we could start uh, with just kind of an, an overview, um, even if we we don't have time to get into the detail on all of the issues, but how you just see sort of the, the world of IP intersecting with the pandemic.
1: Sure. So I think you're right to suggest that there's, uh, uh, as there always is uh, with, uh, with emergencies and problems, there are people who want to take advantage of it. Uh, whether it's by price gouging or selling uh, things that claim to be N95 masks when they're not and so forth. And so one of the things IP can do outside of the innovation space is to try to police and help create a functioning marketplace uh, by enabling people to have some trust that if they're buying a ventilator from 3M, it really is a ventilator from 3M. If they're buying a mask from someone, it really is what it says it is. And I know, that a number of companies, including 3M, have been using trademark law to try to go after not only uh, companies that make counterfeit goods or misrepresent the goods, uh, but also as a lever to try to uh, go after people who are price gouging in the resale market.
0: On the other side, uh, the uh, sort of the, the pure, I guess, IP side, um, George, you, you uh, highlighted for me a story that came out of the Bressica region of Italy, where a digital fabrication company and he started printing ventilator valves that were in great shortage. And the story that I read, allegedly, when the local manufacturer, the fabrication company, contacted the manufacturer of their original valves for blueprints so it could use them to build the replicas, uh, not only did this company decline the request, but then threatened to sue for patent infringement. Uh, Are these the kinds of issues that that you're beginning to see?
2: Yeah, absolutely. The the Italian story is interesting uh, because there's a lot of he said, she said going on here. And that company later stepped forward and said, no, no, we didn't threaten to sue anybody. Um, and other people say, well, it sure sounded like it. But but that, that's really <laughs> beside the point. There is a lot of FUD, right? Fear, uncertainty, and doubt floating around in many of these markets uh, that, that is caused by the presence of IP and particularly patent and copyright in either the designs of parts and equipment, in drugs, vaccines, um, in uh, the digital files that you need in order to to manufacture some of this stuff. Uh, really, there's almost no aspect of the response to this pandemic that's not covered by IP in some way. And, you know, irrespective of of what actually happened in Italy, there, there have been increasing numbers of stories around uh, ventilators in particular, uh, where there is a definite uh, shortage in many hospitals around the world. And repairing existing ventilators, uh, making parts for them, um, making new ones has has run into uh, IP-related barriers uh, all over the place, including in the
0: United States. So I read a story from Canada that focused on the difficulties apparently businesses were having in, it's really an information problem, right, of businesses, businesses who had the capacity to manufacture needed products on, in demand, had difficulty in finding the IP rights holders, and vice versa, IP rights holders had difficulty finding businesses who had a capacity to double up, manufacture or something. Is that sort of information problem something that occurs in the U.S., or is this something uh, strictly north of the border?
1: No, it's absolutely a problem. And so what's notable here is there are a couple of different uh, layers to the question, right? One question is, will someone license you the right to use their intellectual property? But over and above that, there is the question of who owns the intellectual property, uh, and quite often, it's more than one party. Uh, there may be multiple patents owned by multiple uh, different entities. Uh, and so just getting a license from the company that manufactured it might or might not protect you. Um, and and also, I think, an informational problem, not just on who owns the license, uh, whose rights do I need, uh, but also how do I make these things, right? What information is required to actually manufacture events ventilator to the specifications of a company that made it 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, it's worth noting that uh, one of the things that's gone out uh, in the last month or two is a call for COBOL programmers. Uh, COBOL was a programming language when I was in elementary school some <laughs> 40 years ago. Oh, yes. Uh, right? And and so the problem is, I think, multi-layered. Right? It's, is, is somebody going to sue me? Uh, am I worried someone's going to sue me? But it's also an information access problem can I get the information I need to make this work to re- to figure out how to make the parts to fix it and to, to maintain it and so forth?
2: Yeah, I, I would also throw in there that even if you knew the relevant companies that that might have intellectual property, especially patents in a particular category of product, patents are hard to read. Um, they're hard to read for lawyers, and they're impossible to read for people who aren't lawyers. And they're written deliberately in, you know, somewhat broad... Odd and encompassing and possibly vague language. So you know I I looked at the patent that uh, was allegedly <laughs> infringed in that Italian ventilator and you know for the life of me, it's it's, it's just hard to tell uh, even when you have the patent in hand what's going on and what's protected. So uh, there there's there's a lot to be desired in the information um, that that is being conveyed uh, to, to people who are trying to help.
0: In the space that I tend to inhabit. Uh, healthcare law, healthcare policy, healthcare privacy. You know, there's a fairly standard playbook after we have a national emergency um, declared. Um, You're going to see waivers from the Drug Enforcement Agency. You're going to see various enforcement discretions or other uh, temporary waivers from HHS's OCR with regard to some of the HIPAA rules. CMS immediately starts uh, liberalizing rules on telehealth, for Medicare, this gets replicated by the states. For Medicaid, we have the FDA doing um, emergency use authorizations and things like that. So that's the sort of that's that's the playbook over in 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 my playground. What's the playbook in IP law when we have a national or an emergency issue such as uh, we're facing today? Is Are there ways that you try and free up IP in those cases? Are there set plays, if you like, a, a, a playbook? So the answer
1: is there are various mechanisms available to try to free up IP and make it uh, available in response to an emergency. Uh, but I think compared to other regulatory uh, areas, there's a lot more fundamental disagreement on What to do and whether we should even do anything in this space. Uh, So, I will just note the range of possibilities. Uh, On the one hand, governments have, uh, and some governments, although not the United States government, have exercised rights to compel licensing of patents, um, uh, so called march in rights uh, for government funded patents where they could come in and take it over. Um, There's even the possibility of uh, what we call breaking the patent, uh, where the government essentially takes it under the Fifth Amendment, uh, pays reasonable compensation, and then uh, licenses it out to everyone else, all of those would be government actions designed to make sure that a patent doesn't interfere with the uh, widespread distribution of a needed technology. But on the other hand, uh, there are a number of uh, folks in the IP community who uh, not only would oppose efforts like that, but who take the position that uh, if we want more innovation, if we want to move quickly in coming up with a new vaccine, a new treatment, what we need is more intellectual property. We need stronger rights to serve as a as an incentive to create. Uh, and a bill that was introduced by Ben Sass in the Senate uh in the last uh, week or two, would actually add 10 years of patent protection uh, to COVID related innovations, the theory being that that would encourage people to innovate in this area. And I think this is part of a broader trade off we have in intellectual property um, uh, that we see in the healthcare uh, space, right? Uh, we want patents, we want intellectual property to encourage new inventions that we otherwise wouldn't get. But once we have those inventions, patents often get in the way of easy access and distribution. They deliberately raise the price of the drugs. They mean that only one company gets to control uh, how much is made, where it is sold, and so forth. And so when we reach an emergency, those two policies come head to head, and uh, the desire to encourage innovation can run headlong into the desire to make sure that people have access to a needed technology.
2: Yeah, that, that I, I agree completely with Mark. I mean, I would think... In the United States, the only uh, relatively <laughs> frequent uh, playbook that you see in anything like this is the patent office will occasionally um, reduce fees or uh, allow accelerated prosecution of applications in some kind of uh, necessary technology, which is all pretty small potatoes. But the market rights that Mark mentioned have never been executed by the United States government. Um, the government does have rights to, uh, you know, appropriate technology for governmental use, which it does in the defense industry and other industries, um, and even sometimes in pharma, but that really hasn't been mentioned uh, here in any realistic way. But the situation is different outside of the United States, and, and there is kind of a standard reaction in many countries, uh, which is to exercise the kind of rights uh, for compulsory licensing that, that Mark mentioned, right? So, uh, you know, over the years, this has been this type of right has been exercised by India, Thailand, Brazil still other developing countries primarily to get access to uh, medications uh, primarily for HIV or infectious diseases, Um, that kind of reaction has happened with respect to COVID-19 as well. And you have a number of countries, a couple of South American countries, Ecuador, Chile, uh, but also Israel, Canada, um, even Germany has um, advanced legislation to free up some of the IP rights um, on a compulsory basis around potential. Potential COVID-19, either vaccines or therapies uh, that are in development. But that, that is not really in the cards as far as uh, anyone can tell here in the US.
0: Mark, you, you mentioned the bill that's floating through the Senate. That's the beautifully entitled Facilitating Innovation to Fight Coronavirus Act. As well as that 10-year extension, that act seems to provide immunity from liability for some uh, actions around met, uh, using, modifying medical devices. What would be the situation, for example, there was a lot of talk about the president using the Defense Production Act or not using the Defense Production Act? It was hard to tell to make General Motors uh, manufacture ventilators. Is there something built into that sort of when the, um, when the government orders that kind of act? Uh, is there a sort of a general um, immunity uh, in those kinds of emergency situations?
1: So I don't know that there would generally be immunity unless it were provided for in the order or in the statute. Uh, what you might, I think, find instead is some sort of indemnification right. So if the government said, make a ventilator according to these specifications, uh, and I did, and then it turned out that it was uh, defective, uh, or it turned out that it violated somebody's patent rights. I could be sued for doing it, but I think I would be able to turn around and say the government owes whatever damages I owe uh, in that circumstance because they made me do it.
2: I, I think that's exactly what would happen. We we have a statute called Section 1498, which basically allows the government to be sued for, in Infringing patents um, for you know for governmental use uh, in the court of claims. So you can't stop someone, and and that includes the government and its contractors as well. So if someone is manufacturing pursuant to a government contract, they can't be stopped from doing it. Uh, All that you can do is sue the government, make a claim in the court of claims, and then the court will assess a reasonable royalty to uh, to pay to the patent owner. And that possibility is is a very real one. One of the problems is the intersection of sort of the states and uh, the local municipalities and the federal government in this situation and the federal government's statements about sending the states off to uh, do their own thing. Um, if the federal government spread a broad blanket over all of this manufacturing, then then I think we would get some you know assurance under this statute that it could happen. That's not necessarily the case uh, with non-federal
0: manufacturing. I'm assuming that there would be quite a lot of nervousness amongst IP holding businesses if the government did sort of sort of move in in a sort of commandeering way, eminent domain and so on. And, and part of that nervousness might be caused by the fact that that seems to be an issue that is being increasingly raised in the context of drug prices. I know it's it's relatively unlikely to happen, but there are certain, certain arguments being, being made, that that is in fact how the government will have to end up dealing with prescription drug prices. Is there any kind of linkage, any nervousness there? Or are these distinct issues?
1: I definitely think there is linkage in both directions, right? That is, um, I think you're right that while it seems unlikely that's how we will ultimately uh, resolve the problem of drug prices, there is a surprising amount of bipartisan consensus uh, that didn't exist 10 years ago that pharmaceutical pricing is a real problem and that we, ha- we need to do something about it. Um, if you're the pharmaceutical industry, uh, you're nervous about that. And you're also quite nervous about what happens outside the United States. Uh, and so the pharmaceutical industry has traditionally very strongly resisted anything that looks like it might involve compulsory licensing or any sort of government control over price, uh, because their view is that's the thin end of the wedge. And if we let it in, even in uh, unusual circumstances, people are going to say, well, hey, we did that and it wasn't so bad. And maybe we should start regulating prices more generally. Maybe we should start compelling licenses to patents more generally in the pharmaceutical space. So a lot of the political fighting over patent reform in the last 15 years has involved the pharmaceutical industry trying very hard to, to prevent that from happening.
0: And is that why perhaps we see in in the context of the pandemic, um, some of these sort of IP pledges, even sort of almost philanthropic kind of responses from industry?
2: There is, as, as Mark said, certainly nervousness about greater governmental intervention in these markets. And so one way to stave off governmental intervention is to do something voluntarily before it happens. And so, we've been seeing an increasing number of companies who are active in this space voluntarily agreeing to make some of their IP available in the COVID-19 fight, right? And uh, in some cases, you know, this has been prompted by governmental action. So uh, the pharmaceutical company AbbVie, uh, for example, um, has uh, agreed or publicly promised that it'll make um, one of its HIV medications uh, available or make the formulation and patents available for others who want to manufacture it in response to the government of Israel's uh, um, authorization of uh, generic manufacturers uh, to begin production of this drug, even though it's still covered by patent. Um, You know, there have been other instances of Medtronic. The equipment manufacturer has made uh, one of its ventilator designs sort of open source and uh, publicly available. Um, There was a, a... a company, an investment company called Fortress, uh, which um, owns a uh, owns a patent holding company in the medical uh, equipment space, that started to assert its patents uh, against uh, COVID nineteen uh, developers of, I, I believe, vaccines or diagnostic uh, for COVID nineteen. There was significant public outcry as a result of that, and before the government could step in and do anything, it agreed to uh, to make its patents available um, during the course of the, uh, the pandemic. So this is. Is th- th- there is a uh, surge of this type of uh, declaration occurring.
1: And so, I just want to note here that, right? I, I don't, I don't want to leave anybody with the impression that um, the only reason this sort of thing is happening is because we're afraid that otherwise the government will make us. I do think there is some of that uh, with some of the companies, uh, but it seems to me that there's also a decent amount of altruism going on here, and that a company like Medtronic, for instance, looks at this and says, "You know what? We're going to make." ventilators, we're going to make a bunch of money selling ventilators, but we don't have the manufacturing capacity to make all the ventilators the world needs. It would be a good thing to do to give our designs to other people so that they can make ventilators quickly. Uh, that's not because they'll make more money as a result of that. It's not because they think otherwise the government would take it away from them. I think it's because they think it's the right thing to do. That's not true of everyone. I I, I think I'm, a, I'm actually involved in the fortress uh, story and the promise that Fortress made is a little uh, uh, more illusory than it seems to be. So there's clearly a public relations issue around some of this, both in the positive sense. Medtronic can get a lot of praise for opening its uh, ventilators' designs, uh, but also uh, that companies that haven't done that, that have done things like Fortress did, which is sue a testing company uh, for uh, making test uh, machines and uh, face a Face a press blowback, uh, and they're trying to manage that press blowback. So there may be a variety of reasons why companies want to uh, participate in these pledges. But I, but I think we shouldn't discount right, the desire, even among large companies, among universities, to do the right thing to make the world better.
0: So I was uh, reading about a letter that was sent at the beginning of April by about 150 organizations and individuals to the Director General of the World Intellectual Property Organization, asking. Asking WIPO to ensure that IP regimes support do not impede efforts to both fighting the outbreak and its consequences, and I I saw that it encouraged WIPO members to t- member states to take advantage of flexibilities, calling on rights holders to remove licensing restrictions and so on. I'm assuming that is primarily aimed at less developed countries and attempting to improve technologies and drugs for them. Is that sort of the the underlying idea behind that letter?
2: Yes. Yeah, so the origin of that letter um, and the principal backers of that letter are groups that have traditionally been involved in the access to medicines uh, debate, the access to medicines movement, which is directed principally at uh, less developed countries and um, low income countries it's interesting right this pandemic by definition it, it affects everyone in the world uh from highly developed economies and countries to uh to least developed ones um i mean so so the letter and the action that's requested uh of WIPO isn't specifically um, targeted just to least developed countries but you know there there is certainly that um, that background to it many of the sort of international programs around drugs and uh, health equipment have their origins in this access to medicines area, um, including the WHO's efforts around something called the Medicines Patent Pool, uh, which has been uh, pointed to as, as a model for initiatives like this, um, originally starting with the, uh, the goal of making HIV uh, medications available at uh, either no cost or low cost in the developing world. It's expanded to um, other indications like uh, tuberculosis. And uh, hepatitis C, um, but but uh, there you know th- so so there is a little bit a little bit of that flavor uh, to these types of initiatives and requests. But even the WHO, I think, is uh, recognizing that um, the scope of this problem is more global in nature and uh, has has made some indications that uh, their efforts are directed toward the whole world as opposed to just the developing world.
0: You're both involved in what's called the Open COVID Pledge. Um, could you spend a little time talking about exactly what that is, uh, who's involved in it, and, and uh, what its intent, its structure is?
1: Uh, sure. Uh, so the the idea here is to encourage uh, institutions of all types, corporations, universities, foundations, um, to uh, recognize the emergency as a sort of basis for a temporary suspension of business as usual. Uh, And to make sure that intellectual property doesn't interfere with or slow access to needed technologies, whether that's uh, research and testing, uh, whether it's medical treatments uh, or or whether it's vaccine development. Uh, What we have uh, put together is a group of institutions that are uh, pledging to license their intellectual property royalty-free uh, for the use in fighting COVID-19 for a limited period of time while the pandemic is in effect.
0: And how's that going, George?
2: Nick, it's going very well. Um, this project was officially launched, or the, the pledge was officially launched last week. Um, and in that time, we've received like a significant amount of interest. On um, the first day, um, Intel pledged over 70,000 of its patents. It's full portfolio uh, toward this effort um, which is quite significant and and we have received indications of interest from uh, a large number of other firms uh, that we will most likely announce next week um, such that you know I can say with a pretty high degree of confidence by the end of next week um, virtually hundreds of thousands of patents uh, will be pledged for this sort of royalty-free use um, around the world during during the pandemic and for some ramp down period after that uh, to combat COVID nineteen and you know this this includes not only what you might you know immediately uh, have leap to mind which is vaccines and therapies and test kits but but a whole range of things uh, equipment but also protective gear you know PPE um, and and some of the uh, the technology uh, that, that that enables um, tracking prediction models uh, algorithms there 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 are any number of uh, software for apps that are going to be useful here for both for health agencies and for um, you know members of the general public, software developers uh, that that will be freed up. So, you know, we're we're very encouraged by the uh, update.
1: So let me just add to that. Um, so one of the things that we've done uh, with the open covid pledge is uh to sort of separate this into two parts one is a general pledge right i am i am making this general commitment uh and the second is uh is a kind of model license we offer and so some of the companies uh and institutions have just adopted that license outright uh others have uh adopted taken the pledge made the pledge but uh but kind of written their own uh special uh license terms which is fine uh, uh, as long as they're within the general scope of the commitment, uh, that works well for everyone. We have made available on the website, uh, opencovidpledge.org, um, uh, not only the pledge itself and the model license, but some alternative possible licenses uh, and a list of the companies who've made uh, pledges uh, under various different licenses. I, I also want to note, because I think it's worth emphasizing that uh, you know there are different models models and different approaches uh, that are consistent with this uh, to a greater or lesser extent but that are aimed in the same direction. So Medtronic's uh, commitment to uh, release its uh, designs under an open source license, uh, that's not quite the same as our license. Uh, One of the things an open source license does is it requires the user in turn to to license back what uh, they develop under open source. Uh, We haven't required that because we didn't want to limit the uh, uptake only to people who are willing to make the open source commitment, but a commitment like that, I think, is in the same spirit uh, as the Open COVID pledge. A number of universities, Stanford, Harvard, and MIT, among them, have made a commitment to license COVID-related technology uh, royalty-free uh, for a limited period of time. And again, they have their own terms, but we think that's entirely consistent with the with the approach that we're taking in the Open COVID pledge.
2: Actually, you know, another aspect of this that is related but doesn't get nearly as much attention is the copyright side of the world. So one of the organizations that was really instrumental in uh, launching the Open COVID Pledge is Creative Commons, um, which has produced, you know, uh, for, for many years, a, a leading suite of self-executing content licenses for uh, use online and elsewhere for copyrighted material. And and uh, there is a lot of copyrighted material that that is important here, everything from, you know, designs of um, you know the online uh, digital files for designs of equipment uh, and for 3D printing but but also just scientific publications um, research relating to COVID-19 um, which goes back you know well over a decade and a half to similar uh, coronavirus uh, I think like SARS uh, that are in the literature but not accessible to everyone and and the Wellcome Trust uh, which was has also been supportive uh, put together its own pledge for scientific publishers a third 30 of whom have signed up and said that they will make you know any of their literature that relates to COVID-19 freely available and accessible to uh, to researchers around the world. So it, it's really a multi-faceted
0: approach. Well, time is a pressing, gentlemen, and I need to let you get back to your Netflix cues. But let me end with possibly a truly random question, and, and one that if there is an answer, probably uh, would involve such overgeneralization as to not be, <laughs> be terribly useful. But in short, what happens to IP during a recession? Is it sort of like gold, you know, that companies sort of just keep it and sit on it? Does licensing continue? Are there different sort of strategic moves in a down market with regard to IP? Uh, any 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 sense that uh, this is even answerable?
1: Well, we're law professors, so overgeneralization is no barrier to us uh, Yay. getting a shot at it. Um, uh, so I, I think I think the answer is a little bit complex. Because we might distinguish between intellectual property uh, in the sense of obtaining patents, uh, engaging in research and development, doing innovation, licensing and business deals, and litigation. I think you know investment in R&D, investment in new companies often slows down in a recession just because there's less money to be invested. Uh, and so one of the things we've seen in the past is that patent application filings tend to drop or at least uh, reduce their rate of increase uh, in uh, in major recessions. We saw that with the, with the most recent uh, recession in 2008 and 2009. They don't go away. And in fact, the number of patent applications filed has been increasing so much that the really noticeable trend is just that it stops increasing. So people are still innovating. They are still patenting. But there might be fewer new ventures and fewer new uh, research projects going on. I do think a recession tends to take a major toll on the business. This side. There may be fewer licenses, fewer deals uh, in which people are going to go out and kind of exploit intellectual property in new areas. But enforcement of intellectual property is, if anything, somewhat counter-cyclical. Uh, you don't need to sue your competitor in a growing market where the pie is increasing. You're making lots of money. They're making lots of money. Uh, but when things turn down and your revenue is uh, declining, companies often cast about looking for ways to generate revenue. Uh, and that's when they set their eyes on a patent portfolio uh, that looks like it might actually be a means to uh, generate some money uh, in the short run. So I think we often see patent litigation not decline, and in fact, even increase in recessions uh, as companies are taking existing IP assets and trying to make money out of them in a way that they didn't when the
0: when the market was going well. And that was the week in health law. You can find professors Contreras and And Lemley on Twitter, uh, respectfully, at C-O-N-T-R-E-R-A-S-L-E-G-A-L-S. And Professor Lemley is at Mark Lemley, M-A-R-K-L-E-M-L-E-Y. Gentlemen, thank you for a great discussion. Thank you very much. Thank you. Show notes are at twill.com. I am at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Thank you for joining me and have a legally interesting but healthy, safe, and sane week.